The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans, the fourth chapter. We'll continue on uh, reading and studying this section where Paul discusses and describes justification, what it means to be right by God, declared not guilty before God, and how that's accomplished by imputation, by faith alone. This morning we pick up in verses 4 through 8. Paul says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God imputes or credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It was a spring in the 10th century B.C. in Jerusalem, and the military forces of David and Israel were on the battlefield. They were in Rabbah, which is the capital of the Ammonites, was the capital of the Ammonites, about 24 miles east of the Jordan River across from Jericho. If you drop down from Jerusalem down uh, to Jericho, went 24 miles over the, the river, then you would find that plain in which... The battle was raging between Israel and Rabbah. That's where we pick up the most infamous story, perhaps, of any righteous man or woman in the entire Bible. Turn back over for a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's impossible for us to land in this passage in Romans chapter 4 without getting momentum gained through 2 Samuel chapter 11, familiar territory, but reminding ourselves of what happened there will give us such a firm understanding and foundation over why David screams out so loudly about the blessing of being forgiven and the blessing of being justified by faith alone. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from there, the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Just a little footnote about the the geography of the city of David, the Jebusite city uh, we've talked about before. It was built terraced on on the southern slope going up the Temple Mount. And it was terrace after terrace of houses. David would have been at the top and he would have had his palace up there, would have gone out to the roof for some privacy. That's the only place you could go in those terraced apartments, those terraced uh, houses for privacy. Sure enough, He looked down and found a uh, woman bathing who was also seeking privacy. So David sent, verse 3, and inquired about the woman. 
And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is someone's girl, and this is someone's wife. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, seven days later, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So David sent Uriah. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Uriah is called by the king. A little small talk. How's it going out in the field? Then David said to Uriah, tell you what, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, tells you there were a lot of people complicit in this conspiracy, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. It's obvious what David is trying to do here, isn't it? Then David sent to Uriah, stay here today and tomorrow and I will let you go. He needed time to think. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were the Hagibarim in the Hebrew. You know that term. It's the mighty men. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Now he found out how Uriah died. Who struck down Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thesbes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, hey, your servant 
Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab's concerned that if he sends back that they charge the wall that, that close, that David would call upon military history and say, remember when a woman killed one of the men with a stone because they were too close to the wall of the city? David, Joab wants David to know, I, I did exactly what you said. So, verse 22. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. How will David respond to this horrific military news? Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For hey, the Lord, the sword, you know, it devours one as well as the other. Everybody dies. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. So encourage him. A little underwhelming response, wouldn't you say? Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's little ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, you, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him, with the sword of the sons of Ammon. You might say, well, I thought he died from an archer. The sword was just a symbol for dying in battle. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this, by this evil deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went down to his house. We could go on, even verse 15. Look how the description goes on. Now Nathan went down to his house. The, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say David's wife. This would be the limp in David's soul that he would bear the rest of his life. When David is thinking back to the time when he was trying to hide and cover his sin, his words reveal how bad it was. Psalm 32, verse 3 says, When I kept silent about my sin, David says, My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David understood what it was to sin greatly. David understood what it meant to feel guilty. And David understood what it meant to be forgiven. We've been studying the book of Romans, and in the book of Romans, Paul presents, beginning in chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 5, the great doctrine of sola fide, justification, being made right, being credited with righteousness by grace through faith and through faith alone. He talks about the solution to the great guilt that all of us bear, that every man bears because of our sin. And the solution, the, the, this dismissal of not only forensic and real guilt, but this dismissal from being burdened with the feeling of guilt chasing us the rest of our life is, is the most unexpected reality. God justifies, that's a big word that means he makes a person righteousness, he, righteous. He declares them not guilty. God justifies a sinner by faith. By believing something, not by doing something. In chapter 4, he's been talking about this for a couple of chapters. He understands that the Jewish audience who would have heard this would have said, Hey, hang on, time out. You're saying that Jesus was the Messiah. You're saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the Old Testament. He's the one that the great prophets looked toward. If he is, and if we embrace him by faith alone, because of grace alone, then what about the law? What about obeying? What about doing all this stuff that we've tried to do for all of our generations? And Paul says, well, that's the response to faith, not the way you get grace. And he explains that so clearly in chapter 3. Well, in chapter 4, he understands that they would have said, I don't know about that. So he uses the whole of chapter 4, except for three verses, to explain that Abraham, their great father, was justified, made righteous by faith before he was a Jew. But two chapters before he circumcised. 
had nothing to do with him obeying anything or trying harder or being better or doing good. He anticipates that question that a Jew might have about this strange and seemingly new doctrine. It wasn't strange and it wasn't new. It was illustrated by the founder of Judaism, Abraham himself. So all of chapter 4 is given to that except for these three verses that we read this morning about David. Paul's making his argument that salvation by grace through faith alone is the way that a sinner is saved by Jesus. And he reaches for the example of Abraham, but he also reaches for a second example. He reaches for David. There were no two uh, more important people uh, to the Jew than Abraham and David, except Moses. But Moses, it wasn't his life that they looked back to as much as it was the fact that he gave the law. The two great pillars of their respect and honor were Abraham and King David. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul calls a second witness. He called Abraham. He also calls David. Deuteronomy 19.15. We read that in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin or to prove anything he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be confirmed. So David says, I want to prove that salvation is by grace through faith alone. I've already showed you through Abraham. He's going to continue in the rest of chapter 4 to show us this Abraham. But he also says, let me give you a second witness. And he calls David to the stand. James Hastings writes this. The David of Israel is not simply the greatest of her kings. He is the man great in everything to Israel. He monopolizes all her institutions. He is her shepherd boy, the representative of her of her toiling classes. He is her musician, the successor of Jubal and Miriam and Deborah. He is her soldier, the conqueror of Goliath that would steal her peace. He is her king, numbering her armies and regulating her polity. He is her priest, substituting a broken and contrite spirit for the blood of bulls and goats. He is her prophet, presaging with his last breath the everlastingness of his kingdom. And he is her poet, most of her psalms are called by his name. So, David is called to the witness stand for Paul. Paul's saying to the Jews, I know you're having a tough, tough time believing that salvation is not by works, that it's by grace, and you obtain that through faith. I'm going to show you through Abraham, but lest you think it's Abraham alone, let me show you David. As we see that, then we find with Paul, and looking at David, two precious blessings of sola fide. According to David, two precious blessings of sola fide, according to David. The first we'll look at in, back to Romans 4 in verse 6. The blessing of righteousness gain. The blessing of righteousness gain. Gain Back to Romans 4. Just as David, Abraham was justified by grace through faith, just as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits imputes righteousness apart from works. He says, first of all, righteousness is gained by imputation. That's the blessing. It's gained by this imputation, this granting, this crediting. We find that in the first part of verse 6. David also speaks, and now it's really pastoral and really positive, of the blessing, the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness. 
This is an important text because Paul actually equates justification, which is uh, being made righteous, with imputation, which is Paul, uh, God declaring righteous. As we've said all along, there are two ways to think about this. There's the, the Catholic notion of infusing with righteousness, and there's the Protestant notion of imputing with righteousness. The text clearly says credits, not infuses. If it was infusion, if God made us righteous, you would expect us to live righteously, wouldn't you? And I keep asking you, how has that worked out for any of us? He declares us righteous based on nothing we have done or could ever do. That's such a blessing. That's why he calls it a blessing here. Aren't you glad your salvation is not up to your effort? It's a financial term. It's, it's, it's a ledger term. It's, it's saying you have a ledger with your name and it has all of your debts. You owe, you owe, you owe, you owe. Instead of us owing, this is the word for credit. God credits us with righteousness. And he does that by doing two things. By giving us what we need and by taking away what we owe. As we've said before, imputation doesn't mean that God just takes away our sin. It doesn't just mean he gives, takes away what we owe financially if we use that language. He gives us every dollar in the world, all the righteousness we need. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of him, in, of God in Christ. Righteousness is gained by imputation. God will never look at any sinner and say, have you met the measure, met the standard so that I can let you into heaven? Because no sinner ever born to the descendants of Adam would be able to look back at God and say, yeah, I've done enough. Remember the rich young ruler? He actually thought he had. Jesus was interacting with him and basically says, obey the law. He says, oh, I've done that. And Jesus says, actually, you haven't. You haven't. Secondly, though, we find out here in looking at David that righteousness is not gained by works. It's gained by God crediting our account. It's not gained by doing anything or by works. The last phrase says, apart from works. This is the fundamental difference between biblical Christianity and every other system of salvation. It's not by works. Look back at chapter 3 for a second, just, just up the page. Paul's been talking about this, and in chapter 3, verse 28, he says as clear as he can, man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You know what David's response to that is? And Paul is accenting here, what a blessing to be relieved from having to be good enough and try hard enough for God to be impressed enough to let us into heaven. The burden of thinking that you have to do something, contribute something to be right with God is an impossible load to bear. David understood this. There are two places where David talks about the sin with Bathsheba. He does so in Psalm 32, which is quoted here. He also does so in Psalm 51. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 14. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Deliver me from murder. He understood that 
He had been responsible for the death of Uriah. He had personally murdered Uriah by command. Deliver me from being guilty of blood, blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Not anything I can do. I'm guilty of murder and adultery. If you will deliver me from this, I will declare and sing and praise your righteousness, not my own. Oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, works, stuff I could do. Otherwise, I would give it. David is saying, if there were a way to make myself right before you, I would do it. If there were a way for me to be good enough and try hard enough to erase and expunge my sin, you would provide that way and there is no path. There's no eraser spiritually that can make it go away. If there was, I would give it. I would do it. You are not even pleased with burnt offering. Now, that's interesting. God says, I will be pleased with a burnt offering. I will be pleased with sacrifices. You're not pleased with this if I'm looking at me doing this sacrifice to get your favor so you like me. I'm doing this to celebrate the salvation you've already given. In fact, he goes on. We sang it. Aaron led us in this earlier. The sacrifices of God are actually not blood, not bulls, not goats, not rams, broken and contrite spirit. Oh God, that you will not despise. David says, I, I'm so blessed, I'm so happy that I will not be judged by how good I've been to get into heaven. Now, we have to ask this question here, not by works, apart from, separate from works. Now, hold your finger there and turn over to James chapter 2. We said we would come back to this a few weeks ago because there's much confusion over whether the Bible contradicts itself by looking at James 2 and Romans 4. Paul says, we are justified apart from works. Works cannot justify us. And yet, James says in James 2.24, this. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whoa, time out. What, what in the world does that mean? That is a clear grammatical contradiction in Scripture, is it not? It is. No, no, no question. If you read that verse alone, James is answering a question that he poses. You can't understand Paul by one verse, nor can you understand James by one verse. James is answering a question. What are you talking about, James? Rewind the tape back to James 2, verse 14. Now we find out what he's doing here. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says, I have faith, but no works. Can that faith save him? Not faith, that faith. A faith that is defined by antinomianism, the theological word, not having to do anything. James and Paul are standing back-to-back fighting different opponents. Paul is fighting the Jewish concept that all I have to do is be a Jew. All I have to do is do these works and these superstitious things, not stepping away from my house so many steps and this, that, and there. If I do that, it doesn't matter what I think about God. If I will do enough, God will save me. James is fighting another group of people who are saying, well, no, no, no. If I just believe enough, it doesn't matter what I do. And he corrects 
That group, Paul corrects another group. They are not contradicting one another. Look at what James says. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? His point is, if you say you believe something but do nothing about it, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But if you are, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's dead. It doesn't exist. He's not saying, well, let's let him say what he's saying. Was not Abraham our father? Ah, he comes back to Abraham too justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works as a result of the works. Faith was completed or perfected. Now, lest anyone tell James, ah, you think that works saves you. James is so cognizant that someone would make that conclusion. Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled And Abraham believed, there's his faith, God. And it was reckoned, that's imputation, credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see that a man is justified by his works, not by faith alone. And then he talks about Rahab. What's he saying? He's saying you're justified by faith alone. It's just not a faith that is alone. Faith is accompanied by affections for the Lord and by good works. They follow salvation They don't precede salvation. And James is clear about that all the way through this epistle. They're not contradicting one another. Paul's fighting people who say, I can do what I want. It doesn't matter what I believe. James is fighting people who say, I'm going to believe what I want and do whatever I want. Believe what I think is right and do whatever I want. Back to Romans. So Paul says, it is a precious value to be redeemed and saved and he looks to David for that there's a second precious blessing of sola fide according to David everything we've looked at so far as review this is really fresh data that Paul introduces here the blessing of sin forgiven you say I thought he already talked about that not like this 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 is so unimaginably and unspeakably encouraging the blessing of sin forgiven Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He's going back to Psalm 32, looking at the first couple of verses of that and pulling that in to call David as a witness for sola fide. So let's break that down. The blessing of sin forgiven first is the blessing of sin acquitted Sin acquitted. Blessed are those, verse 7, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Stop with the word blessed. It's a workhorse word. Jesus used this word in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, and he gives this list of, of, uh, of, of if and then questions. If you, are, if you do this, you're blessed. If you do this, you're blessed. Blessed means happy, content, in a state of peace, settled, 
In fact, I would say the state of blessedness is what every man longs for from the day he knows how to want. It's what everyone's searching for, to be blessed. Blessed are those, and then look at this phrase, whose lawless deeds. It's an interesting description of one aspect of our sin. Lawless deeds. This is the sin and the sins committed because decisions were made to live outside the parameters of God's word. Hear the law. Lawless deeds. Living according to moral intuition, according to our own instinct, living according to what we think is right. This is where the the book of Judges spirals down. Every man did that which was right where? In his own eyes. Lawless deeds. Living by our own set of rules. He says, no, no. Blessed is the man who's forgiven of that. You know who needs to be forgiven of that? You and me, we naturally live our lives according to our own inner moral code, according to our own inner sense of right and wrong, and that's sin, because it will never get us to God. He says, blessed are those who are are forgiven for the lawless deeds that we do. Forgiven here is a really interesting word in the Greek. Um... The, the Greek language uses several words, and all of those words we translate forgiven. Aphetheson is this one. It means, it's interesting, it means to send away, to put out, to acquit, to, to get out of our sight. In the gospel, God sends our sin out of his Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation for those who eagerly await him. He bore away our sins. He acquitted them. He took them away. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And I know you know this verse. Psalm 103, verse 12. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, the east is further from the west than the north is from the south, right? If you go north and you continue north, you'll eventually start going south. But if you go east, you'll never stop going east. And if you go west, you'll never stop going west. If you go south, you'll eventually start going north. He says, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Infinity. He's acquitted us. He's taken our sins away. Oh, it gets better. It gets even better than that. Also, it's the blessing of sin covered. And remember, quoting Psalm 34 here. And whose sins have been covered. He adds a second dimension to the blessing of of the state of being a forgiven person with another angle from Psalm 32. Now he looks back to grab the language of Leviticus, Leviticus 16 and 17, the day of atonement. Atonement means cover, to cover sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 25 for a moment. Paul is going to climax to talk about this same issue of atonement and covering as he finishes up his discussion and description of Abraham. He was delivered over because of our transgression and raised because of our 
justification. The reason our sin is covered is because of a person. It's because of Christ. It's because of Jesus and what he did. Atonement has been the the theme of salvation and of forgiveness since the very first sinners. Remember Adam and Eve? They they sin. They uh, fall away from God. They immediately know that they were guilty. This is a footnote. Isn't it interesting that the first recognition of sin was immodesty? It's interesting. So they decided we need to cover ourselves, cover our sin. What did they do? They created, got fig leaves. Now, one question that you have to consider is, did that work? Be careful, because the answer was yes on a human level. I'm sure that those leaves covered their private parts. They covered their nakedness. There's nothing wrong with linen and cotton and using plant material to wear. Many of us are doing it today. But the covering that they needed wasn't just superficial. God came back and made them other coverings. What were the coverings made of then? Leather, skin, which meant that an animal died to cover their sin. Their own attempts at self-righteous covering themselves didn't work. It couldn't work. It wasn't because it was fig material or cotton or linen. It was because it wasn't accomplished by God and it didn't involve death. Before thinking of the gospel in the very first sin. In the gospel and with salvation, God covers up so he's unable to see it or perceive it, our sin. You know what he uses as a covering, though? His own son and his death. He goes on. Also, the blessing of sin pardoned. Back to Psalm 34, he says, blessed, verse 8 in Romans 4, blessed is the man, happy is the man, peaceful is the man whose sin the Lord will not even take into account. It will be pardoned. Paul makes the point that imputation, the declaration that this man is righteous, this woman is righteous because they believe what I've done in the work and the death of my son by proving it in the resurrection, that's linked to the remission of sin, not the idea of infusing us with righteousness. He takes away, let me ask you a question, pop quiz. Does he take away some of our sin in, 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 our, in our justification? No. Most of our sin? No. What? All of our sin. No matter how many times we confess something, we cannot get to the point where something is not covered. He has died for sins past, present, and Future. There's a motivation not to sin. John Murray writes, The blessed man is not the man who has good works laid to his account, but whose sins are not laid to his account. Do you hear the difference? It's not just that God said, Hey, I give you righteousness, that's okay. He takes away our sin. How does this work out practically? With, with you and me. How does that work out practically? Can I ask you just some very personal questions? Are you, are you one of the people who are just waylaid with guilt 
There are things in your life and in your past that you, you believe you were forgiven for. You, you know that Christ died for, but still cling to your, your feet like a, like a person holding on, not letting you walk. Do you carry an unspeakable burden? Silently, perhaps. Maybe not even known by your closest friends, your spouse, or your family. Was there ever a case where you were dishonest and you know you were dishonest and no one knows it but you? Is there a lie that you told someone and you have thought about that year after year after year? Have you gossiped about someone that caused them harm and you never let it be known that you were the source of the demise of this person's reputation? Ever cheated on a test? No one ever knew but you. Cheated on a tax return and no one ever knew but you. Ever been immoral? Done things with someone of a sexual nature that no one but that person and you know? Adultery in thought or deed? Indiscretions and abortion? Even a criminal act that you look back in your past and you say, that, that continues to haunt me to the point where I start doubting whether God has forgiven me. Can I introduce you to a friend named David who also bore an unspeakable burden, tried to conceal it, tried to conspire to hide it, I've been saving this, but now will you turn over to Psalm 32? We just get a couple of verses in Romans. Paul would have known that his readers had ready access to Psalm 32. This is what Paul's quoting. How blessed is the man, is he, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not credit or impute iniquity or sin, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. You know what? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all the day long, have you known even the physical consequences of guilt? Ever felt like this? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I tried to forget it. I tried to escape it. But when I laid alone, I thought about it. And when my mind rested in the day, it came back. My vitality, my strength was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Now, here's the big question. And I can't answer this for you. Let's say you have one of those things in your past what do you do with that? Do you need to go make it right? Maybe. That's, that's a whole another question than this. Is David talking about going to all of the people he wronged? To Bathsheba's parents, to her siblings. We don't know about that. But here's what we do know. I acknowledged my sin to who? To you, God. And my iniquity I did not hide. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Has your guilt ever made you feel like you're drowning? You are my hiding place. Most people think that's a reference to a high fortress, Masada, where you can be found. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Does that reflect, does that reflect how you've ever felt? I believe in the devil. I believe that Satan exists. And I believe he has influence over thinking. And you know what his primary goal in the life of a believer is? Is to get you to doubt the gospel. You know how he can do that? By taking sin in your past and showing it to you in your face day after day, night after night, over and over and say, you're not worthy of of this kind of forgiveness. You can't be acquitted of this. This is too much. You have to do enough to make up for that. When you hear those thoughts, those are the devil's thoughts. Those are not the thoughts. Those are not the words of Psalm 32 and of Romans 4. Have you ever sang, as I have, with tears in your eyes about your life and your past? This lyric, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, what? Not in part, but is nailed to the cross. And this phrase, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. My soul. Are you bearing sin today? Why? Why? He died for that sin. You can't make it up. Stop trying and run to the cross where it's already been forgiven. Father, give us fresh assurance that your death takes away our sin and only your righteousness covers us. Pray for those who have sins in their past that continue to haunt them, who listen to the whispering of the enemy, who would tell them they are unforgivable and this is too big a hurdle to ever overcome. Preach the gospel fresh to their heart today. While you're still bowing your heads, in a minute I'm going to dismiss us and we'll, we'll have some folks over here. The Oaks will be over here to my right. We'd be glad to talk to you, pray with you. We have a prayer room that we can spend some time with you. Please don't leave with that burden of sin. Be able to sing, oh, the bliss that it's gone. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>